Presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, and I'm joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello. I do have a little bit of banter. Do you have any? No. Okay. Well, mine is inspired by a listener email. Actually, we're doing listener emails on today's show, and I was just looking through to see what we were going to answer today, and there was one that I didn't necessarily think was worthy of answering, but I answered it just to indulge a Patreon supporter, and that led me to an interesting story that I don't think we've discussed before, and I don't think I was aware of before, although I had one of those weird moments where I reacted to it as if it was something I had never heard before, and then 15 minutes later... Later, I started thinking, wait, have I had that exact reaction to that same story before? Is this the second time I discovered this? So someone may write in and say, you guys talked about this on episode 150 or something, but nothing on the wiki. So this is a question from... Adam, who says, on a recent episode, Sam mentioned the season when Pete Rose had an OPS plus of just a little over 68. This made me wonder, what would it look like for someone to have an OPS of 420 or an ERA plus of 420? Is this even possible? How would this person change the game in the ways that Ruth and Bonds, both players with obscene OPS pluses before, changed it? And obviously, Adam is asking if it's possible to do this over a full season, and it's conceivable, but... It would be the best season ever by far. I mean, Bonds' best OPS pluses are, what, in the low to mid 200s? So that's about as good as it's ever gotten, and you'd have to be about twice as good as that. So almost inconceivable, but... Just for fun, I looked to see if anyone had done this in extremely small sample seasons, and both have been done three times if we take away all plate appearance and innings minimums. So three hitters in baseball history have had a 420 OPS+. plus all in seasons of one plate appearance, the most recent being R.J. Alanis in 2019. He is a pitcher, of course, but he had one plate appearance and he went one for one, and that was a 420 OPS plus well, for one him. One for one with a, with a, a single? single? Okay. Yeah, with a single. This is uh, something that I suppose could change in the future because park factors change in retrospect, and so maybe in the future he will not have had a 420 OPS plus, but he has for now. On the pitching side, I was expecting to see maybe a bunch of guys who had pitched in one game or something, and there are actually a few slightly larger sample seasons. So the three Kimbrel's, Kimbrel's got like three hundreds on his resume, yeah, right? In a real season, so yeah. yeah. So like I would imagine a like a Zach Britton ERA might be better than a four hundred four twenty. Yeah, when, when he had the point five ish ERA. Yeah, so there have been three seasons again. So it was 2007, Joey Devine had a 420 OPS plus in eight and a third innings. 2013, Sean Burnett had one in nine and two thirds innings. And then the one that was kind of eye popping was Bill Henry in 1964 with the Reds. He had a 420 ERA plus in 52 innings. 
and that was a 37-game season for him and a .87 ERA with a 2.89 FIP. Very good season for Bill Henry. So then I started looking up Bill Henry's career because I wasn't that familiar with it, and he had a very nice career. He pitched for the Red Sox. He pitched for the Cubs, the Reds, the Giants, the Pirates, and the Astros very late in his career. So he had a 16-year big league career, and he retired or finished with a 120 ERA+. plus. So he was just a good pitcher, but he was a reliever for much of his career. And so he wasn't spectacular, but he was sort of a trailblazing reliever. Was a lefty. He was an all-star once. He pitched for a World Series team. Nice career, but not really that notable or memorable because, I don't know, his name is Bill Henry. And he just sort of blends in. And other than the one all-star season, he doesn't really have black ink or anything. He once led his league in games pitched at a time when there weren't really that many relievers. 65 games was a league-leading total. So nice pitcher, but nothing really that spectacular until I looked up his bio and Bill Henry passed away in 2014 in his 80s. But in 2007, another Bill Henry died. And it turned out that the Bill Henry who died in 2007 in a different part of the country had stolen the pitcher Bill Henry's identity and was living as if he was the pitcher Bill Henry, a different Bill Henry who just pretended to be Bill Henry for a large portion of his life. And this came out when his local paper, the non-real Bill Henry, Bill Henry, ran an obituary of him and included the details that he was a major league pitcher and, you know, Bill Henry's life. It also mentions that he was a World War II Army veteran. That part, at least, appears to have been true. And this obituary circulated and someone at Sabre noticed that some of the details looked a little off and checked with the real Bill Henry, who was still very much alive and surprised to find out that there was another man in a different part of the country who had been posing as him for years. And this was picked up by the Associated Press. So again, this is fairly recent, 2007, so I'm not sure why I wasn't aware of this or maybe I forgot about it, but I'm just going to read from this AP report that appeared in the New York Times, September 5th, 2007. Everyone here knew Bill Henry as an old major league pitcher. At church, around the golf course, and certainly at home, the 83-year-old Henry did not like to boast, but he had <laughs> stories. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those things are actually exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, he, that's he right. lived to boast, <laughs> and he did not and, have, his and own he had stories. no stories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the boys at the nineteenth hole lounge at the golf course where the six foot two left-handed Henry retired. So he was six foot two and left-handed, just like the real Bill Henry, had to pry for nostalgia. <laughs> but Henry knew his stuff. His appearance in the 1961 World Series with the Cincinnati Reds, the 1960 All-Star Game selection, the 16 seasons in the majors. But it turned out that the Lakeland, Florida man was not the Bill Henry who played Major League Ball, and the tales he spun were unraveling a week after his death following a heart attack. The former reliever by the same name is alive and well in Texas, stunned someone had claimed his accomplishments for decades. The 79-year-old Henry learned of the imposter after the Associated Press distributed a short obituary, etc., etc. I really can't understand why a man would do something like that, said the real pitcher, to impress his family or his neighbors. 
The Lakeland man's family was not sure when the deception began. His widow, Elizabeth Jean Henry, said the couple met more than two decades ago in Michigan. His third wife, she said she never met her husband's two children, who were both dead. She said he did not mention right away that he was a former Major League pitcher. But she had no reason to doubt him when it came up. Elizabeth Henry said she did not have any memorabilia aside from a few baseball cards, no rings, no trophies, no photos. But she said she and his stepchildren still believed he played at least some level of minor league ball. He told me once he could hear his father when he was pitching in a game, Elizabeth Henry said. He didn't tell me what game, but he said he could hear his father in the stands calling his name. I don't think he lied about all that. Although you have to admit his credibility is sort of shot after the rest of this. It continues, the couple moved here 19 years ago after he retired as a salesman and he was a staple at the Sandpiper Golf and Country Club. He met one of his closest friends there, a former semi-pro pitcher named Bob McHenry, who also never doubted him. McHenry said he had played for a team fielded by RCA several decades ago. The two even gave a biannual lecture called Baseball Humor and Society at Florida Southern College. To me, there were two relievers at that time, Joe Page for the Yankees and Bill Henry for the Cincinnati Reds, McHenry said. It was about the early 50s that relieving became a big thing in the majors, and I could accept Bill as that person. He knew the names, McHenry said. He and I had a lot of opportunities to talk about people in the 40s, 50s, 60s. He knew his stuff. And the real Bill Henry featured on the baseball cards looked just like the one in Lakeland. It's creepy, striking, the nose, the face, the squinty eyes, said Janine Hill Cole, the wife of Henry's stepson, David Cole. I mean, I'm still here looking at the picture we put in for his obituary, and you'd swear it was the same man. However, it goes on to say that they had different middle names, so that kind of gave it away. They had different dates and cities of birth, which uh, seems like something. Of I a mean, red they're flag different there. people. They're, they're <laughs> <all>. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yes, that is uh, the One's thing. One's alive, the other is no longer. I mean, there's differences. <laughs> the fatal flaw in his story was that he was not Bill Henry. The Lakeland man had explained to family and friends that the different birth dates were a deliberate deception when he was a prospect to make scouts think he was younger plausible so that's a pretty good cover story i guess he would have been four years younger i think which that seems sort of extreme but it's happened it it could be true skip perez the ledger's executive editor that's the local paper said the newspaper said it should have done a better job confirming whether the local man's stories were true there had been some discussion over the years about doing a story on him one of our staff writers i think was a member of the same church in a way i wish we had done the darn story 10 years ago or whatever because hopefully we would have checked or made a call or something although maybe it's better that this was not exposed (laughs) while the guy was alive because that would have been very embarrassing anyway the real bill henry who was alive at the time said it doesn't bother me at all he is quoted as saying in the story and he seems if anything somewhat amused by it and i guess kind of touchingly the real bill henry actually called the fake bill henry or the imposter bill henry's widow to wish her condolences which was nice of him so i have so many questions I, i don't know what to make of this story like so can we just though real can we i just want to make clear because yeah. I, I was listening and also browsing for more yeah. bill henry stuff <laughs> he never legally stole his identity he did not take he did not open credit cards in the man's name no he, he, was, he wasn't even living under an assumed name this was his name it was his name <laughs> yes he, so just he just told borrowed the backstory he, he just told stories and pretended not to boast. And, yes. and that, that's it. Okay. 
Yes. And All right. To the extent that his whole family <laughs> thought that he was the pitcher, Bill Henry. So sort of harmless in the sense that it's not like identity theft in that the real Bill Henry had to go cancel his credit cards or whatever and didn't even know about it while the imposter was alive. But also very strange. And Rick Riley also wrote about this for Sports Illustrated. Great title to his story, The Passing of a Counterfeit Bill. Clever. He's got some additional details in there. So when the imposter Bill Riley would give those addresses to the class at Florida Southern College and tell stories, he would claim to have gone barnstorming with Satchel Page. Heck, I'd make more money with Satchel than I ever did in the regular season. He'd chuckle. Most they ever made in the big leagues was $17,000. This is incredible. The man had cojones the size of pumpkins. When the Detroit Tigers were in Lakeland for spring training, he'd go to the games and mingle with the old-timers. He'd even get the big backslap from former Tigers managers Sparky Anderson and Ralph Houck. Tells you how dumb baseball people are, says Anderson. Riley talked to the still-living, real Bill Henry, who said, It's amazing a guy could pull a hoax for that long, isn't it? I'd congratulate him. If that's what the guy needed to do to help his career, it don't bother me. I just hope they don't stop my social security. Then Riley writes, the real puzzle is why. Why would a handsome man with a lot of friends, a great wife, and a six handicap create such an elaborate and exhausting lie? Not for love. Gene didn't know a bunt from a banana. Did he say it once as a lark and then get caught in it? Did he yearn for a ballplayer's life instead of a salesman's? Did he thrill to the con? What does it matter? Asks one of his best friends, Bob McHenry. Bill was a good man. He hurt nobody. He never tried to make money off it. Look, we live in God's waiting room here. Bill probably made a lot of old guys happy. All of a sudden, they knew a major leaguer. Then it goes on to say that when Gene went to the funeral parlor, people there couldn't find his ashes. His remains had mysteriously disappeared. I just have to wonder, like, at what point in life did he consider starting to do this? Because it's not a contemporary player. This is a player who had been retired for years, seemingly by the time the fake Bill Henry, or I guess he's a real Bill Henry, just not this Bill Henry, decided that he was going to appropriate this identity. So had he been considering it for years? Was he a Bill Henry fan his whole life? And he was just waiting until he could get away with it? And I I guess once he was sort of alone and he had remarried and his kids were no longer alive, there was no one who could actually expose him as a fraud. So he thought, well, (laughs) it's finally time. Going to deploy my Bill Henry story. Or did it just occur to him? Is it like a sad sort of secret life of Walter Mitty type tale where in retirement or in his somewhat advanced age, he thought, you know, I just didn't have the life that I had envisioned for myself. And it'd be much more fun to pretend that I was the pitcher, Bill Henry, instead of the Bill Henry that I am. So it's funny and and sort of sad. And I guess I'm glad for the guy that this didn't come out while he was alive, because again, it's kind of a victimless crime. And at least he was spared the embarrassment of having this story exposed while he was alive. But I'd also really like to know. And was he a baseball fan? I guess he was, according to the wife's story about his pitching with his father in the stands. So I guess it's the sort of thing that if you have the same name as a big leaguer and you're a baseball fan, you're hyper aware of that player. And so at some point, he just figured, I'd like to tell these stories that I don't actually have. Boy, oh boy. I First, I, I would just say that he, uh, the fact that he was the same height as yeah. pitching Bill Henry is, should have been, well, that should have been a real red flag because I'm, you know, in your 80s, you're not your playing height. 
anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I, uh, I'm not mad at at Bill. This is definitely not something I would do. You know, <laughs> I want to be clear that I I wouldn't be able to pull this off. Yeah, and so I can just say flat out, like the thought of it, my palms are sweaty. I don't like. I could not pull it off, and therefore. I don't really even have to engage with the moral question of whether I would try if I had that superpower. Yeah, fortunately for you, there's there's no temptation because there's no Sam Miller who is the right age for you to pull it off. There are some Sam Millers, but they're all much too old for you to get away with it. But I do I don't think I would do it and I don't think I would do it because, you know, I would feel bad lying to people around me. And so I guess in the, the way that I would feel bad doing it, I suppose I should think other people should feel bad doing it. But but if he didn't feel bad doing it, I am fine with him doing it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's weird because, you know, he can either feel guilt for doing this, in which case I don't think he should do it. I think if, if you feel bad doing it and you do it anyway, you're, you know, you're violating your own sense of integrity. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel guilt because you recognize the harmlessness of it and it's a funny prank that it, you see it in the spirit of what it is, which is... You're not really stealing anything of value from anybody, and mm-hmm. it, it is a certain sort of kind of, it takes a bit of acrobatics. You're, you're challenging yourself all the time to keep this thing going. Today, I wrote a long article about a hoax in baseball, mm-hmm. and that'll run early next week, I believe, and I don't feel mad at the person who pulled it off. I don't think that it was, it was done from a spirit oh, I of- I know what the story is. Of greed or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah. I think it was, uh, you know, sometimes you just throw a thing out there and then you see if you can keep the ball in the air. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably what Bill Henry, fake, fake Bill Henry, was doing. And, and so I support that. Now, there's a third possibility. So there's the guilt and he did it anyway. I don't approve. There's the no guilt and he did it. I approve. Mm-hmm. There's also the no guilt because he is incapable of feeling guilt for anything. Yeah. And that, you know, I don't, I would not like that. I don't think that right. that a, person a talented should. Mr. Ripley, talented. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah. ultimately, having never met the deceased, I can't speak to this, but I'm kind of glad that this came, I'm very glad it came out when he was already passed away. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty glad at everybody's reaction to it. Yeah. I'm glad this is a part of baseball history. You know, Bill Henry II wrote himself into baseball history in a very creative way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm not fired up. I like yeah. it. Yeah, I'm, I'm amused by it. I guess the only thing that makes me wonder whether this is actually a bad thing is I don't know how his family really felt. There are a couple quotes from them here in the story about this revelation, but you have to put yourself in the place of that family, right, of his stepchildren and his wife. And if you find out that your husband or stepfather was lying about his whole life, basically, then you have to question, well, was he serious about other things? Did he mean anything else he said to us? Did he truly like, love like, us? <laughs> right. Did he really, was, like, was Santa Claus really real? <laughs> yeah. Did the tooth fairy really break into our house? I mean, what do you do when you realize that your dad lied to you? about something right most of us realize that it happens for various fun reasons and we get over it and so i guess again i've I've never met bill henry i've also never met bill henry survivors and so i don't know what spirit they would have taken this in i don't know if bill henry left a little note somewhere saying (laughs) gotcha like if if he opened the will and and he revealed it i mean there's lots of fun there's a lot of i think fun ways that this story could be resolved in the family 
And then there's also like right dark and unpleasant ways. Yeah. And it's very hard to know what he left his right. uh, his survivors with. There was a story a, about a year ago that was going around that uh, the New York Times wrote about and others wrote about, Washington Post wrote, wrote about it, about a couple, a very normal suburban couple that had walked into an art museum in 1985 and stolen a $165 million de Kooning and then hung it on the back of their bedroom door. (laughs) (laughs) And no one knew it was there because anytime you open the door, it would go against the wall. Uh So for 25 years, they lived 25 years, 35 years almost. (laughs) They lived with this, like they would close their door at night and they would see this classic. Now, if there is a victim there, it's the de Kooning that they slashed when they tore it out of its frame. And 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 it's the people who owned it and the people who didn't get to see it. And there's all sorts of, but uh, so I'm not, uh, this is a different, uh, anyway, though. So then, you know, they died. And so their survivors their children. My recollection is that some of their survivors are like, yeah, boy, that does not look good. And then others were like, no, they just picked it up at a garage sale. I'm sure of it. They would never do that. Uh And one of the justifications for that position was if they had known that, I mean, if they had stolen it, you know, they would have gotten rid of the evidence before they died. Like they wouldn't want to get found out after they died that they were like, like humongo thieves. Right. Mm hmm. And I just don't know if I believe that is how they would act or how anybody would act. And so I guess the question is, if you had a $160 million de Kooning that you had successfully heisted for 35 years, would you get rid of it before you died? And if you were pretending to be Bill Henry for all your life, do you think you would just hope that you would get away with it after your death and you wouldn't really care anyway because you're dead? Or do you think that you would really feel like it was important to have a contingency in the event of your death that you, you know you you sort of you get one last chance to spin this in your favor to frame mm-hmm. it in a nice way. Yeah, that's tough. The decoding story reminds me of the Goldfinch, where a character steals a, a valuable painting and keeps it and is sort of racked with guilt over having it, but also really likes having it because it has a, a special significance to him. And I think that's ultimately the big reason why I wouldn't do this is that I would be constantly afraid of being found out and of people knowing I was a fraud. And I can't imagine that whatever pleasure I would get out of pretending that I was a former major league pitcher would actually make up for that constant dread of being exposed. Because, I mean, I don't know that I personally could actually take much pleasure out of people being impressed by my Bill Henry stories, knowing that I'm not actually that Bill Henry. And that makes me wonder, did he eventually convince himself that he actually was that Bill Henry? You know, by the time he died, he'd been living as this other Bill Henry for 20 years or so, it sounds like, a quarter of his life. Did he come to think of himself as Bill Henry, the way that you tell a lie a a number of times or someone tells you about a a false memory that uh, you supposedly did something when you were a kid and suddenly you remember doing that thing, even if it didn't actually happen or you remember it differently from the way it happened? So (laughs) Yeah, but probably not. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I guess not, but... The other thing is that the real Bill Henry is like the perfect player to do this with. Like the circumstances really have to line up. Not only I was going to add, I I don't know, maybe you're going to, maybe, maybe you you can keep talking, but I I do want to butt in and say, I was going to ask you, 
If yeah. you could make your, I don't know why right. you would, but if you could make yourself look like and have the same name as any baseball <laughs> player and then live as them in your golden years, whose yeah. career would you want to steal yeah. knowing that it would be hard to, for instance, say, I'm Carlton Fisk. Like exactly. you probably would right. get caught, but you also don't want to say, I'm Jamie Brewington. You probably wouldn't right. find anybody yeah. who cares. And so is is Ed Henry... Ed Henry? Bill, Bill Henry? Henry? Get what about your story Ed Henry? <laughs> Ed Henry's still available. <laughs> Would Bill Henry... Right, is Bill... I think that the problem with Bill Henry, the one problem with Bill Henry's career, that if you could pick, an, uh, uh, you would pick somebody else, is that he... Uh, inevitably, someone's going to say, Bill, did you ever pitch in the World Series? And mm-hmm. then you'd say, of course I did. Mm-hmm. And then they'd say, how'd you do? And you'd say, I gave up five runs in two innings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 19.9 career postseason ERA. That's unfortunate. But yeah, I do think that this was perfect in a lot of ways. Perfect, obviously, in that they had the same name, were roughly equal contemporaries, and were both listed as 6'2 left-handers. So the story was there for the taking. But also, Bill Henry's in that sweet spot, I think, where if he were a bigger star, if he were a household name or a more uncommon name, even if it were just not that incredible a career, but a distinctive name, you probably couldn't get away with this. And if it were a legendary player, you couldn't really get away with this. The story would come out. And yet, you can't be a bad player, really, because then why bother pretending to be that player? I I guess, you know, any kind of big leaguer, that's a story for you to tell at the golf course. Hey, I made the big leagues. I was there for two seasons and I sucked, <laughs> but I was a big leaguer. In a sense, it would be lower stakes because you're probably even less likely to get exposed. But, you know, it's not as fun to brag about. Whereas Bill Henry, the real Bill Henry, you go to his baseball reference page, you're impressed. I was, you know, not really being that aware of him and suddenly seeing, oh, wow, 16-year career, well above average pitcher, was an all-star, pitched in a World Series, etc. You know, you could tell stories of all the great (laughs) players you pitched against or played with over this long career. So really, it's perfect, I think. Bill Henry, it's just the the perfect cover story. So I don't know. I'd I'd have to think about what big leaguers... identity i would want to assume because there'd have to be something special about the career but not too special or it just wouldn't work yeah yeah you're right this bill i mean because not only is bill henry like perfectly in that like you know he long career but not not such a great career that he's going to be you know expect that he's right like you're not like you're not carlton fisk but but also real high high points you know had that great era had the year he was an all-star, you know, had 16 seasons. Like you, like it's, it's so rich for drawing mm-hmm. things out of like, you're not just even a, a plain compiler. You have, you have highlights. You led the league. You got bold ink. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I like to imagine that Bill Henry, the fake, the fake Bill Henry was not actually left-handed, but had to be left-handed, <laughs> had to do everything left-handed to keep this going. And so for the last 20 years of his life, he was just like <laughs> constantly like, clumsily screwing everything up like the whole town's like yeah bill's got coffee on his shirt again he can't why can't he drink from a cup what is wrong with him he drives like an idiot yeah like everything everything you do is like 30 percent worse right and the whole town knows you as just this walking failure because you're 
trying to be Bill Henry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he really had to commit to the bit. So not to end this on a down note, but I did just look at his Saber bio, and there's a quote in here from his widow that's not in the AP story, and it was in the local paper after this story came out. When the hoax was revealed, Elizabeth Henry, widow of the deceased Floridian, was besieged with phone calls from reporters. So, A, she was hounded for a while, which is unfortunate. She's in mourning, and meanwhile, she has to field this call about her husband's hoax. And then there's a quote, I just took his word. That's who he was. She said, it's an awful shock. It's hard. And also, I was married to somebody that maybe I didn't know. So that kind of moves me more from the harmless prank to Mm -hmm. this was not a nice thing to do. (laughs) So, yeah, maybe this, uh, I don't know if this should have been a a deathbed confession. I guess he had a heart attack, so he didn't have an opportunity to make a a deathbed confession, maybe. But uh, actually, it looks like he had Alzheimer's for a few years before the heart attack. So by the time he went, he may actually not have known which Bill Henry he was, or he may not have remembered being either Bill Henry, which almost makes it sadder maybe it would have been easier on his family if he had had a chance to say the bill henry thing that that was fake but i love you i really do i meant all those things i said to you so yeah Yeah, it really it's tough because you you think about like you think about old men and they tend to either be uh you know really nice or like get really mean and (laughs) like it's oversimplifying things but as we talk about in my family uh a lot, the sort of inner core of you comes out as you reach a certain age and you become um, a more extreme version of that that thing at your core. And if that thing at your core is spiteful and in, insecure, then then you, you know, often become a very spiteful and insecure person. Or the other way, you become, you know, quite wise and calm and at peace. And so if he was uh, the jovial old man who was kind and, and wonderful and uh, just found joy in every everything and was the the loving grandfather who pulled quarters out of his grandchildren's ears, then you could see this being a fun little thing. And if he were, you know, mean and grumpy all the time, then you could see it being really nasty. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that quote, uh, we don't know, but that quote from his widow Mm -hmm. points in a certain direction. Yes, it does. All right. So that's the Bill Henry story. How would you feel? I'm trying to remember. No, this was a different thing. How would you feel, Ben, if you found out that somebody was pretending to be you? (laughs) <laughs> and they were getting nothing out of it except for 12 minutes of conversation at, when they would introduce themselves at cocktail party. Oh, you're on a podcast. Oh. <laughs> right. saying, like, what's that like? Like, where, how do you choose the music? Like, that's it. That's all they get. But yeah. they are living as you for 12 minutes a day every couple weeks. Yeah. Well, if they were alive, I'd feel a little disturbed. Yeah. <laughs> I'd worry whether they would want to eventually off me and assume the Ben Lindbergh life for real. If they were gone and I found out about it after the fact, I, I guess I would be semi-disturbed and maybe at least partly flattered <laughs> that someone thought my life was interesting enough to want to assume my identity. So as long as it didn't go any further than cocktail parties, I, I guess they're part of me that would be kind of gratified that I had done something worthy of imitation. It's tough because you can't tell your wife. You can't tell your wife and have your wife be complicit in this hoax. (laughs) So you do have to, if you're going to keep it going, you have to lie to the wife. And and that's uh, probably something that 
could be pulled off by the right person in the right relationship and mm-hmm. have it be done in a good-natured spirit, but very tricky and could not be done in my relationship. And so I am now saying it is unlikely that this could be done yeah. in a generous spirit. But- it could be like a, a Jimmy McGill, Kim Wexler kind of shared secret where you're uh, defrauding others as a couple and you're getting something out of pretending to be someone you're not. So if they were both in on it and they were both getting a rise out of telling this story, then I guess that could be kind of nice as a couple's activity. Let's pretend that you were a big league pitcher, but Let's yeah, it's probably cooning. not that. Yeah, right. And I guess if he had come clean late in life, I wonder at that point, maybe it's just so socially embarrassing. Maybe the family just <laughs> props up the lie, goes along with it, just figures uh, this would be an awkward conversation to have with everyone to come clean about this. So let's just continue to pretend that you're Bill Henry and we'll back up your story. Now that I think about it, I think that the survivors of the de Kooning couple did accept that the dad, that the husband took it, but didn't believe that the wife was in on it. Uh, uh-huh. uh, and it gets really weird because a man and a woman are on the you know the security camera. They go out there, and then the the I think one of them kind of distracts the lone guard while the other takes it away. And there is a theory that the man and the woman are not the husband and wife, but actually the husband and the son in in a dress, uh, huh. his son in a dress or something. I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, take everything I have. With the extreme caution of me not quite remembering this story (laughs) and trying to convey how little I want to incriminate anybody by accident. Okay. I will link to the real story on the show page. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Ben will do the real story on the show page. (laughs) Okay. All right. There's a third Bill Henry, by the way, who's still with us. He pitched two games and three innings for the Yankees in 1966 while the other Bill Henry was still in the league. Never allowed a run, but that was it. So the Bill Henry imposter had multiple Bill Henrys to choose from. I guess he chose the one with the better stories. Plus, the other Bill Henry was a 6'3 lefty, so he never could have gotten away with it. All right, let's take a question that is not about Bill Henry. This is from another Patreon supporter, Jesse, who says, If you could go back in time to be a local beat writer for any team in MLB history, or I guess to pretend you were a beat writer for any team in MLB history, just like Bill Henry, which team would you pick? You would get to follow the team from the end of the previous season through the end of the following calendar year. It won't take any time off your life as you'd be transported back to the day you left on this trip. You would still know who you are while back in time and that this was a two-way journey, but you can't influence the future in any way and your knowledge of what occurs in baseball during that particular season and beyond is eliminated from your memory. So what MLB team from the past would you most like to experience anew, either again or from before you were born? So like if if hypothetically I was just really I wanted to see what the world was like in 1935 and like what the food was like and what tomatoes were like, then I would enjoy that experience. Like I wouldn't have my memory wiped or would I have my memory wiped? It sounds like after the fact in Jesse's scenario, you would. So it says that any knowledge of what occurs in baseball in that particular season and beyond is eliminated from your memory which makes it less appealing to me. It'd be nice if I could remember it, but it would still be fun to experience in the moment, I guess. Just once you flash back to the future, you would not even know that you had been gone. And I guess your 
your work would be gone too. So if you were a beat writer for that team, then Jesse's saying that you can't influence the future. So I, I guess it would be as if you had never existed. Hmm. Do you have an answer? Well, it's a lot less appealing to me if I don't get to remember it and if my work is not preserved because then it wouldn't burnish my reputation. Like if you went back in time to cover a really excellent season and you got to write about it, that might make you a legendary beat writer or something. So you you don't get to be that and you don't even get to savor the memories when you come forward again. So in that sense, I don't know that I would even care to do this, but I was going to say, since we are in the waning hours of Jackie Robinson Day as we record this, that yeah. that would be, I think, the obvious choice for me, at least, that you go back and you're a beat writer for the 1947 Dodgers and you get to see Jackie Robinson break the color line up close. Now, part of this, I think the appeal would be that you could cover it in that moment with your sense of what the the sweep of history would be like and what this story would mean to future generations and you could document it and cover it in a way that maybe it it wasn't covered at the time obviously it was very well covered and everyone knew it was an extraordinarily significant event but knowing how it turned out and how that continues to resonate to be able to go back and maybe get some stories that aren't preserved and some scenes and talk to some people that aren't on the record that would be really interesting and of historical significance and you could just really kind of flesh it out with an eye towards how it would be perceived by later generations so you'd be doing some work for the future that would be of value and i mean if you were interested in just being a a legendary baseball writer you could go back in time and sort of be on the right side of history right and cover it as a person from 2020 covering this event knowing what it meant and having no reservations about what was happening at all and you know very stridently denouncing everyone who was against this and sort of being a crusader so that you could paint yourself as a a very sympathetic figure and future generations would say oh boy he he really was a, a liberal thinker he really saw that uh, there were injustices and that this was the right thing and, and all of that. So if that's not on the table, I still think it's the the right choice just because what other season could really give you that sort of human drama and emotion? Because if you went back in time just to cover an interesting team, you'd know how the season ended. It wouldn't really be a big surprise to you. So, well, no. Okay. So I've read his question again and mm-hmm. I think that all, all, all the thing, all the restrictions that you put on it are actually not in his email. The only restriction is that once you get there, you will forget what happened, you know, after you're there. So anything that happens will be fresh to you. That's, he is wiping your 2020 memory mm-hmm. about baseball once you arrive. But everything else is fine. So you do get to bring the information back home with you. And you do have, like, general 2020 knowledge about everything. So you you would have had to pose as an imposter, right? You would have had to do a Bill Henry thing 
you couldn't pretend to be yourself because then when you came back to the future, it would be awfully strange that you were the same age that you had been in 1947 as a beat writer. So you'd have to have pretended to be someone else. Somehow you're in this job or you're just, uh, are you occupying the, the body of the actual beat writer? I don't know. But you have to be a separate person. Yeah. So it, it's not like you are getting some reputational boost here. No, but you're you... not getting a boost from your beat writing, but you could bring back your notes. Okay. And, and then you could say, be... I found this in the attic or something, and you could put it out there. You could describe in incredible detail what the room smelled like, right? Or the, the reports would be there, right? The the newspaper archives, you would actually have published these stories. And that's so, true, too. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Although everybody will have had access to those. But right. I mean, you know, that's where this is like... <laughs> it's not uh, primarily about right. publishing your own <laughs> reputation. <laughs> that's yeah. what we've turned we're it just, into. We're just but... clarifying Terrifying, though, <laughs> yeah. that you would have the suspense. Like any other season or that season, you wouldn't know what was going to happen as it was happening. Oh, okay. Right. All right. That's I what see. gets wiped. That's all okay. that gets wiped is your memory of what's about to happen. Okay. I and see. so you would be you'd be covering the 19... If you didn't do... Like, like let's say you picked a, a season for the pennant race. You wouldn't know that you were watching the Giants. I see. So uh, your memory about is wiped to come back. when you're in the past. Right. You wouldn't you know that you were. Right. You'd spend, if you went to 51, you'd spend most of the season thinking you were covering a dud season before the Giants' furious comeback. Yeah. And so you would live through it the same way that the hmm. actual beat writers did, where okay. you'd be kind of excited. But I mean, just to, I would just, like the answer, like the all. Like the only season that really matters in baseball history is 1947, and the only player who really matters in baseball history is Jackie Robinson. And so, uh, like, that's the answer for everything. Yeah. If we're choosing a second choice, then from storytelling, from competitive standpoint, like, let me ask you this. If you were in 1950, you kind of want to, I, I have kind of been trying to decide which season would I like to cover as me, where I think that probably the coverage at the time maybe wasn't that good, or where I could, you know, do... We, for instance, in 2020, if you know that the team is stealing signs, then you would probably report it. And in 1951, if you knew the team was stealing signs, you wouldn't report it. And so, like, would you want it if you had the chance to go back and bust the Giants? <laughs> For having, you know, somebody with, with the binoculars when hmm. Bobby Thompson hit the home run, would you want to do that? Would that would you feel like that was a productive use of, of the of the time machine? Or like does that make you a fun part of a baseball story and baseball lore? Or does it make you, you know, a snitch and <laughs> <laughs> like pick something better to do with your time? Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit struggling with this. I'm having a hard time deciding how much to weight the just the fun of living in a different era entirely yeah. versus, of course, the grossness of living in a different era entirely. <laughs> probably, I wouldn't probably like how things smelled and tasted. Mm-hmm. So that's all tough. I mean, I feel like the 1908 season with Merkel's boner and the yeah. last day of the season See, is hmm. the, I think that that's the greatest month of baseball history. That occurred to me too, except that I probably wouldn't even be watching the game, right? Like I thought I'll go back in time and I will pay close attention to Merkel's boner and I'll see what actually happened and I'll be able to document it. But 
if my memory is wiped of what's about to happen in this yeah. scenario, then I'll probably be looking at my notes or something and I won't even be watching the play. So that's a problem with that one. It's but it true. was still a very exciting season and event, obviously. That's, yeah, I mean, it all comes down to do you just want the most exciting season? Now, the 47 Dodgers were a very good team too. You get a seven-game World Series. You get a, a great team. You get Ebbets Field, that whole atmosphere. You get to see Branch Rickey. You get to see a lot of other legendary players. I would like to see that era myself just because my family is from Brooklyn and you know my mom talks about how when she was very small, she remembers Gil Hodges in the neighborhood and the players used to walk and drive around and play ball with the locals and everything. And she was not quite born in 1947, so I wouldn't get a weird scenario where I met my mom. <laughs> so, But I would like to take in that whole heavily romanticized era in baseball, the the Brooklyn Dodgers and Ebbets Field, and get to see that for myself. So that would be a nice perk that it just so happened that Jackie Robinson broke in with that team at that time and not a, a terrible team in a terrible place at a terrible time. I would love to cover the first year of the Dodgers in LA, but it was a bad season. They finished seventh. There wasn't much going on for the game. And so that one it's kind of off the board, but I think in, in general, like that has one of the most kind of cinematic sort of sceneries of, of a season, just mm-hmm. like LA in the 50s, brand new team, young Vin Scully, everything cool except for Can write terrible. Eric Nussbaum's book before he has a chance to. Totally do it, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I feel like the 2015 Royals were pretty fun. I, yeah. If, if you're asking me to pick which team was the most fun to read you know about by its beat writer then it would be the 2015 royals yeah that 2014 to 2015 royals team is probably the most fun team that i have seen and watched a lot of not every day obviously but as (laughs) confounding as that team was and the way they kept defying predictions and everything that made them more fun the way that they won and the way that they played was incredibly fun so yeah i'd I'd go back and relive that season i guess except that i already lived through that time so if i were going to choose a team you know maybe you could choose like the team of your childhood say like the the team that you really loved growing up and you could cover them in a new way. I don't know if you'd actually want to do that because maybe it would puncture some illusions of your heroes of your youth or something. But if I could go back and watch, you know, the the Dynasty Yankees or something that I grew up watching, that would be sort of fun for me to be able to do that with adult eyes and, and sabermetrically educated eyes. So I would consider it kind of a waste, I think, to relive a season that I had already lived through just for the historical significance of getting to see it. A different time. The 2012 A's had Brandon McCarthy, Brett Anderson, and Sean Doolittle. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, it's a good clubhouse. That was the uh, that was the famous. Was that the fa- yeah? That was the famous uh, chemistry clubhouse too. The one yeah. where uh, Brandon Gosh. Inge and and Johnny Gomes came and were worth uh, huh. 28, 28 wins or whatever. Yeah, that might be the best for a beat writer if you need a quote. Can't mm-hmm. beat that. All right. Yeah, well, we covered a lot of possibilities. There's a lot. There's a lot of ways you could go with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, the tricky thing too is that you know I'm not a good beat writer. Like, <laughs> I, if I if you gave me 20 years to do it, then I, I I would trust that I would get pretty good at it. But I'm not a good one right now. I wouldn't be a good one if you sent me out there and told me now you're a beat writer. 
I don't think. And so you'd send me back, but I would miss everything. Like <laughs> I wouldn't be there when yeah. the thing needed to be got. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, it's a little, if I don't know what's going to happen, I don't think that I would get the good stuff. Yes, I agree. All right. Step West. All right. I got a couple. You have one inspired by a listener email, and I have a Stat Blast cover of the week submitted for the Stat Blast covers competition. This one is a virtuoso violin performance instrumental by Tess Teruskin, or possibly Teruskin. So here's her version. both inspired by listeners. All right. I'll do the quick one first. Kyle Lobner notes that Cleveland and Milwaukee have played each other 414 times in franchise history, and the all-time series is tied 207 to 207. Are there any other all-time series in MLB history where the teams have met at least this often and are tied? And I will tell you that the answer is no, that there are in history 23 500 matchups that show up in a play index search. 10 of those 23 are either 9-9 or 8-8. None are 7-7 or below because every other team has played each other that many times, uh, or I guess played each other zero times. And of the other 13, one isn't real. It's actually the Kansas City Packers versus the Brooklyn Tip Tops of the Federal (laughs) League. So they're Uh in the search, but of course, they're not a major league team as we typically mean it. And then another one isn't real. They show up because they're at 500, but Cleveland and Detroit are actually not exactly 500. They're 1,090 for Detroit, 1,092 for Cleveland. So they're two games off, rounds to 500. That leaves 11. And uh, of the 11, most of them are in the teens. The second highest is the White Sox and Astros at 33-33. So uh, Milwaukee and Cleveland at 207-207 is by far the highest number. But I will just say that it's all fake because this search goes back to 1904 and, you know, Cleveland and Detroit played before 1904 too. So this Mm -hmm. is all kind of a somewhat arbitrary thing. Like there's nothing innately more interesting. If, you know, if Detroit wins the next two games, they will be at 500 and then there will be a third game in the series and they will no longer be at 500. But the same basic point will be true. (laughs) So I don't know if any of this is that interesting, but it did, I answered it, and it did reveal something that I think is actually much uh, a little bit more interesting that I found on accident, which is that as of right now, all 29 Major League franchises have played the New York Yankees, and not one has a winning record against the New York Yankees. Every single team. makes sense, I suppose. It does, except, uh, well, I mean, it does, because the Yankees Mm -hmm. have been better than everybody for a century and Mm -hmm. consistently better and like for instance baltimore who's also been a franchise for that whole time you know in different cities before but have lost almost 500 more games than they have won they have a 400 winning percentage against the yankees the royals have a 399 winning percentage against the yankees in 500 games the yankees just you know crush everybody but even the interleague teams are all at the moment 500 or lower and that is news because 
The Phillies are 15 and 15 against the Yankees. They were actually over 500 until the last time they faced, and the Yankees won two out of three to even the season series at 15 15. And that was in 2018. And the Dodgers are at 8 and 8 against the Yankees, and they were over 500 until the last time they met, which was this past year when the Yankees won two out of three. So I don't know if this is the. I, I presume that until interleague play happened, the Yankees were over 500 against every team in history. I mean, that's basically a mortal lock, I think. But once interleague play began, I don't know if there had been a time before this where they were over 500 against none of the interleague teams, Mm. or I should say under 500. At the moment, they are at least 500 or better against every single team in the majors. So there you go. Okay. All right. The second one is a question from Tyler. And Tyler basically asks this question. He's talking about the difference between pitcher war and hitter war. And he says, if you decided to allot all your dollars to build the best starting rotation possible, how many starting pitcher war would you need to overcome a lineup and bullpen that was replacement level at hitting and at fielding to make the playoffs? And then he rephrases it. More simply, would a 2019 team with a rotation of Garrett Cole, Jacob deGrom, Lance Lynn, Max Scherzer, and Justin Verlander still be considered a World Series contender if the lineup was, and here he lists a bunch of replacement players, and you answered accurately, a replacement level team is expected to win about 48 games, so you need at least 40 war to be a potential playoff team. The highest team starting pitcher war ever, according to Fangraphs, is 27. So if you had five 99 Pedros and a replacement level everyone else, yeah, you'd be good. But if you had any rotation any team has actually had, no. And I feel like the question actually, I'm glad you put answered those two things and put it that way, but I feel like the question actually asks for the third option in the middle, which is not five 99 Pedros and is also not a team that has ever existed, but is the five best pitchers that exist in that year. So obviously mm-hmm. there have never been five 99 Pedros. I believe the record is one in 99. Otherwise you have no 99 Pedros, but you have other good pitchers. There are five best pitchers in the league every year. So I simply wanted to see whether the five best pitchers in the league in any year, in any year would be good enough to make you a great team or a playoff contending team. So I got the five best pitchers every year, starting pitchers every year, and looked at their combined war. And you said you needed 40? Yeah, roughly. To be a contender? That'd be a mid to high 80s. That'd be a mid to high, right. So you're not a World Series, uh, well, once you get to the postseason, then maybe you would find that those five pitchers have, uh, maybe they would be dangerous in the postseason. Mm -hmm. But you might not get there. A lot of teams win 88 games and don't make the playoffs. But that would make you a contender. So in 2002, the five top pitchers, which at the time were Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling, Roy Halladay, Derek Lowe, and Barry Zito, they had a combined 41 more, but they started 171 games. And if you're pulling these five pitchers together, you could not start more than 162 games. So if you prorate that to 162 games, they dropped to 39 more. And that is actually the second highest. So every other team is below 40 and then prorated to 162 because most years the top five starts slightly more. Then all of them are below 40, except for one year, one year alone, the 2018 season, the top five actually were worth 44 war and they pitched exactly 162 games. So you don't even have to make an adjustment. So for that one year, 
It was Aaron Nola, Jacob deGrom, Max Scherzer, Kyle Freeland, and Blake Snell. They were combined 44 war. If you assume replacement level everywhere else, that would get you to 92. Now, the tricky thing is that Aaron Nola's war that year and also Kyle Freeland's war were both slightly suspect involving uh, the defense around them, and I don't think either one was as good if you look at Fangraph's war, for instance. So maybe that's slightly exaggerated, but sure, 44. Now, here's my question for you. If you had these five great starters and they were worth 44 war, do you really think they would only be worth 44 war? Do you really think they would be worth 44 war? Or can you come up with a reason that the sum of those five pitchers plus replacement level everywhere else would actually be either better or worse than 92 wins? Hmm. Other than, you know, random fluctuation. Right. You know that, that they all have healthy full seasons, so yeah. you're you're you not actually having to call up replacements, which in theory is is accounted for by the stat. But I don't know, maybe the fact that you don't have to risk the variance that you normally do, because mm. you might call up someone and he'll be terrible. He'd be worse than replacement level. And in this case, you know that you don't really have to dip deep into your minor league stockpile. You're going to have these five workhorses and they're always going to go. So that would be good, I think. And maybe the fact that you save the bullpen a lot so you could use your relievers in a more optimal way like you're not going to have to be bringing them in early just to get through games and so maybe they will stay fresh and and healthy late in the season and you could deploy them in a, a very efficient way because all of their innings would be late in the game and and high leverage in many cases so I guess that would be good. I'm trying to think of anything else, like maybe a a run saved. I think some studies have suggested is slightly more valuable than a run scored, but I don't know that that would really make a, an appreciable difference here. Eh, I don't know. Is there any other possibility you're considering? Yeah, well, the run saved, I think, is a crucial one. The idea being that a run is worth more in a low-scoring game, that it's more likely to determine the outcome. Right. And so a, a pitcher who saves a run in a low-scoring environment is worth more than a hitter who adds one in a high-scoring environment. So there's that. But you know, generally speaking, if you have five aces... You figure their baseball reference war does not care whether those aces strike batters out or not. They don't, they don't really care if you're a strikeout pitcher or not. It's a runs allowed based war system. But usually you would imagine that five aces would also strike a lot of batters out, in which case the poor defense of your replacement level position players could be less damaging. That's assuming they are poor defenders. So if you had five aces and then all replacement level hitters, but they were actually better than replacement level as hitters. They were just worse than than average as as fielders. And so you were sacrificing a bunch of defense in order to get a little bit more offense while trusting your ace pitchers to do more of the job themselves. Also, if you are you know, if you are an ace, if you have two pitchers and each one allows a hit, the ace is a lot less likely to give up a run with that hit. Uh, because he's less likely to have runners on. Mm -hmm. And he's also more likely to strand the hit that he allows because he's less likely to allow another hit afterward. And so it could be that, uh, I don't even know where I'm going with that one. 
Yeah, I think there's probably some effect there. It's like when you add a certain type of hitter to a certain type of lineup, there can be sort of a a bonus to that. Like if you're, I don't know, if you're a a team with a bunch of low OBP power hitters or something and you add a a high on base percentage person who's going to be on base for all of those power hitters, maybe there's a benefit there. Now, with starters, they're going on different days, so there isn't really a a lineup effect where they complement each other necessarily unless they're so stylistically different that it's giving opposing hitters different looks and maybe that helps you in a way. But Otherwise, probably there isn't that kind of multiplicative effect, but I, I bet there's something along the lines of what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. What I, I'm going to try to rephrase the last thing, which is okay. that if you have a bunch of aces, it feels like you could maybe build the rest of your replacement level team to make the aces worse by allowing a bunch of singles. Like basically you're going to put a defense behind them that's going to allow a ton of singles because they're they're really bad at defense. But you don't care that much about the singles because you know the pitchers are so good overall that they will be able to more effectively pitch around the singles, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So in a way, the negative defensive war that your fielders are, are on paper producing are not leading directly to runs at the same proportion that they would if you had a league average pitching staff. Uh huh. Yep. All right. Okay. Do you have time for a last one? Let's do one more. All right. Let's see. This is, well, I've got trout questions that are kind of related. Let's see if we can tie them together maybe here. So one is from Andrew, Patreon supporter, who says, you all, and maybe Meg to a slightly lesser extent, readily acknowledge that you are no longer fans of a team due to writing about the game. You also gush about your favorite players. Would you consider yourselves fans of Mike Trout? If so, what's the difference between a fan of a team and a fan of a player? And I thought that was an interesting question because I I don't consider myself a fan of teams or a team anymore, but I do sort of consider myself fans of a a player or certain players or I don't know if I would say fans. I think when writers become writers or journalists, some of them just decide, okay, I can no longer root for a team anymore. I have to be objective. I'm renouncing my allegiances. Others, and I think most probably, just sort of lose it because you're doing this as a a daily thing. It's your job. Some of the romance and mystique goes out of it. You get to know the players maybe, and they're just regular people, and you're less awed by them perhaps and ultimately you're you're covering the game you're seeing every team and so it's hard to really retain that allegiance to one team or at least it was for me and I briefly worked for the team that I had grown up rooting for and that sort of made it even harder in a way to continue to be a fan of that team you'd think it wouldn't because I'd have every incentive to root for them but something about it being my job just sort of took away the relationship to that team that I had already had But there are writers who remain fans of teams, and I think you can be pretty objective and you can cover a team well and write about a team well while being a fan. You know, maybe you can write about it from the fan's perspective, sort of, but even if you're not, I think it's possible to sort of separate those things. But it's tricky. You know, you you don't want to be a a booster of that team if you're trying to provide pretty objective, informative coverage to people. But with individual players, I think, you know, A, I'm I'm rooting for players to perform a certain way. I, I don't necessarily think I know them as people or or that they're 
great people. You know, I mean, Mike Trout seems like a, a very good person from afar. I like the Mike Trout public personality, but I don't really know Mike Trout. And I root for him to do well because I enjoy his excellence. And I think the thing is with players instead of teams is that you're not born to it, right? Like if you're a fan of a team, that's something you inherit. It's just my team, wrong or right, thick or thin. I am supporting this team, whether they're terrible or not, whether they do bad things or not. Whereas with a player, you didn't inherit that. It wasn't drilled into you from birth. You had to pick that player, you know, assuming it's not a player who just plays for your favorite team and that's why you're a fan of them. Something about their personality appealed to you and you chose them. You have some agency in that choice. And if that player is no longer a person worth rooting for, then you can abandon them, which is difficult to do, I think, with a team that you're a fan of. I think I need to talk to some people who are golf or tennis fans Mm, to find out how they relate to their favorite players so that I can judge what it means the way that I relate to my favorite players. Because I don't really know how to put how I feel toward Mike Trout or or anybody else uh, within that context. And I would like to know from somebody, since I would like to, to hear from somebody who definitely identifies as a fan of golf or tennis players and hear them describe it and see if I hear the same thing, yeah. in, in which case I could then say, ah, yeah, that's, that's me, that's fandom. Yeah. I think that I like watching Mike Trout, but I think I like watching Mike Trout because it's, the, it's interesting baseball. Right. And given 15 games, I look at him and say, what's the interesting baseball here? And sometimes that's Mike Trout. Sometimes it's a pennant race. Sometimes it's a new pitcher, uh, you know, like a new prospect showing up. Sometimes it's just a compelling story that day. A lot of times, though, it's Mike Trout or the best player or the best pitcher. And does that, is that, does that make me a fan or is that right. just me making a cost-benefit analysis <laughs> of how to spend my time? Yeah. I also, separately from that, I also like Mike Trout to do well. But that's because it produces content for me. Yes. And a lot of the time, what I'm rooting for in in any game, in in a single at bat, is I hope this will make the thing I want to write about become more compelling so that I actually do write about it or so that I can write about it or so that when I do write about it, I have a good story. So, you know, a lot of times you're just rooting for a double play and you don't care at all about the next day you won't care at all about that team or that player, but the double play is good for your lead. Mm-hmm. And so in both of those cases, what I've described is a, is, a, is a very sort of self-centered way of making his achievement work for my benefit. Yeah. And so I don't know if that is any different than every other fan <laughs> source of fandom, yeah. but it feels a little bit different. It's not... I'm not feeling, I would say that generally speaking, I'm not feeling the joy vicariously, which I think is Mm. how I did when I was really passionate about a team. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, when you're a fan of a team, their success sort of reflects on you in a way, or you adopt it as your own success. You have a pride in it. You have a real stake in it, which I don't really with players with individuals there are players i want to do well but yeah part of it is for for the content like 
when I really get obsessed with a player, if it's Trout or Williams Estadio or whatever, in general, I am really keying in on them because of their performance on the field. Like I'm generally not that invested in a player because of his personality or, or backstory or something. I mean, you know, I like Zach Greinke stories. I, I like the personality of Zach Greinke. Am I a Zach Greinke fan? I, I wouldn't say so. It, it doesn't really bring me any particular pleasure when Zach Greinke succeeds, aside from the fact that I think he's an aesthetically pleasing pitcher to watch. And someone like Williams Estadio, I really got interested in him before I knew that he was even entertaining as a spectator. I just thought, wow, this guy never strikes out and never walks. This is a unicorn. I am fascinated by how this person exists. And so I want him to play well because I want him to continue to be a story and something I can write about and talk about and marvel at when I see his stats. So does that make me a fan? I don't know. Am I just instinctively recoiling from the idea of being a fan of something? I'm I'm a fan of bands. I'm a fan of uh, people who make other kinds of art and authors and things. So why can't I be a fan of a baseball player? Maybe it's not actually that different. I want them to do well. And no, it's not really reflecting my own sense of self-worth in the way that it did when I was a fan of a, a team. But it's not so different to say, well, I'm a fan of Stephen King. I, I love Stephen King's writing. And I'm a fan of Mike Trout's baseball playing. He's really great at playing baseball, and I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah right. You don't have any problem saying that you're a fan of Stephen King's. No. It is no different. It is <laughs> like you enjoy <laughs> the experience of it. Mm-hmm. And also, you might write about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, like that's that's how you relate to many of the things that you consume, right? And uh, and I don't question your love for them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I want to hear what a what a Jordan Spieth head uh, describes <laughs> uh-huh. as their their reason for rooting for Jordan Spieth. Yeah, I used to think that was kind of curious too. When I was a fan of a team, I enjoyed tennis for instance I liked watching tennis I liked playing tennis but I never really got that invested in any particular career because I always thought well that's just a person (laughs) you know like why should why should I care really if that person does well they're not rooting for me so why should I really live or die based on whether they win this major or not I'll enjoy the experience but it's sort of strange almost to be a fan of that person in a way that it affects your mood And yet that is how many people interact to people and celebrities and personalities and teams, obviously. So there's nothing really inherently that strange about it. So, yeah, I don't know if I'm just kind of uncomfortable with the idea of describing myself as a fan of someone because I might conceivably interview that person or write a story about that person. And I don't want my reader or listener to think this person is biased because he's a a fan of of this person. So he's not going to give me accurate coverage. He's going to look at everything through rose-colored glasses. I don't know how you could even do that with Mike Trout and and exaggerate how good he is because it's hard to do that. But Aren't you kind of worried about the opposite, though? Because, you know, we we want people to hear in our experience and our discussion something that they relate to that that is familiar to the way they consume things and since other people don't have that same inherent unfan attitude i I worry that people will just not relate to the way that i describe mike trout or anybody that they will just think like that i cannot be i'm not on the same emotional frequency that they are Mm -hmm. 
And so describing this right here, I'm worried that I, I actually worry <laughs> that it's sound like, like aliens we, or something. Right. That we're yeah. putting it too too bluntly and that people won't believe that we actually like love like, like really enjoy baseball as much as we do enjoy baseball when we write, right. watch it and then talk about enjoying it. Yeah. It's just that like you know, when you have a job, you're really you spend a lot of emotional energy hoping that your job will go well. <laughs> like mm-hmm. jobs take over your life. Like I was when we were talking about the Stompers the other day, I was thinking about, but I didn't say. But it, kind of an undercurrent of how I related to that season is that I I was very quickly a Stompers fan, and I cared a great deal about it working, yeah. and I also cared a great deal about the players doing well. And what I really cared about more than anything was that I had already gotten in advance, and I was terrified of what would happen if we didn't <laughs> produce a book. Yeah. And that was like the thing that caused me stress, and the thing that I was most rooting for was a book to happen out of it. And you just like you become a sort of a very greedy hoarder of of self interest when when it's mm-hmm. your job at stake. And so there is an aspect of like I turn on a baseball game and I'm like looking for a thing to benefit me. And so I I I worry I worry that that makes it unrelatable. Yeah. But mostly though I still feel like. I watch baseball the same way that I that I did. It's like I, I have to sort of suppress the part of me that is worried about work. And when I do, like the baseball is still there. It's it's still like I enjoy so many of the same things about it. I enjoy the weirdness of it. And I get really into the drama of it when I'm watching it, especially mm-hmm. if I'm watching it without an article that I'm halfway through. So I, I can enjoy baseball very well until I'm halfway through an article. And then everything that happens after that has to go in a way that makes the article, the, the second half of the article work out. Yeah, I think, right. I don't want to sound too cold or clinical about it. We really care about these things and respond to them. Maybe not in quite the way that a fan does or that we did when we were really fans. And that was one of the nice things about that Stompers experiment was that I was living and dying with every pitch in a way that I hadn't since I was a kid. And yes, that was largely self-interest, but also I did care about the the team and the players and everything. But I think it's just a reflexive resistance to calling yourself a fan of something just because it's so drilled into you that no cheering in the press box, right? And you have to maintain this impartial journalistic stance about everything. And I think that is helpful in many ways, but also you can kind of take it overboard a bit. It's okay to enjoy these things. And I think if one of these players who I really love and enjoy watching as a baseball player turns out later not to have been a a good guy or something, then I'm going to revise my opinion of him and I'm not going to celebrate him in the way that I once would have. I, I won't be so blind to his flaws as a person that I would say that, uh, well, I'm just going to ignore this because I like his baseball playing. So I'm not uh, just all in on someone I'm a fan of in the way that when you're a kid and you're following a team, your team and, and its players can do no wrong and they're larger than life figures to you. Whereas now it's just, well, I admire this person's work. He's very good at his job. He does it in an aesthetically pleasing way. He's hopefully a good citizen too, and I enjoy his career very much. So I think it's fair to call that fandom of a kind. It's just that fandom kind of gets a a bad rap. You can be a smart fan who maintains perspective on things, or you can be a fan who just 
thinks that everything that the the thing he's a fan of is perfect and better than everyone else. So <laughs> Trout is better than everyone else, but not because I'm a fan of him. All right, let's end it there. All right, that will do it for today. Many other excellent questions we didn't get to, but we will get to them in future episodes. Thanks to all of you very much for keeping the questions coming at a time when it's probably a little bit tougher to generate questions that aren't related to the coronavirus or when baseball will be back. We need you now more than ever. Speaking of which, you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already gone to Patreon and signed up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Manny Diaz, the Hooper family, Kara, Jeff, and Hayden, Trip Von Minden, Lyndon Barker, and Michael Poplowski. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Your reviews supposedly help us find new listeners, and they also just brighten our day. You can keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcast.pangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, as always, for his editing assistance. If you're looking for some reading material, the paperback version of my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players, is out now. It includes a new afterword, and you can pick it up anywhere books are still being sold. Support a local bookseller if possible. We will be back with another episode later this week. Talk to you then. I'm the great pretender Just laughing and gay like a clown I seem to read what I'm not to see I'm wearing my heart like a crown Pretending that you're still around. Right. Okay, you ready? Your vest is off. Uh, my vest is off, but I just can't know something. I can't get comfortable. <laughs> Ridiculous. I've been uh, hearing noises, odd, unexplained noises <laughs> since yeah, we said hello. I'm in the pandemic lounge, uh-huh. which is uh, has lots of different ground level, floor level seating options. And I've done this in here 15 times and it's always comfortable. And today nothing's working. All right. Yeah, sounds like you're squirming a lot. I am. Oy. All right. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Here I am. Here we go.